Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering Syria. It's been a dizzying few days in terms of news out of Syria and Turkey and Trump and the Kurds. And it's it's a lot to take in for readers. And it must be just in- incredibly challenging for reporters who are trying to make sense of it, especially in a region where there's not a lot of people on the ground. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by Carlotta Gall, who is the Istanbul bureau chief for The New York Times. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled you're here. Before we get into what what it's like to cover this story, just talk me through, it looked to us from here that this amazing turn of events that began with Trump's phone call with Erdogan took absolutely everybody by surprise at the State Department, at the Pentagon, even in the administration. Is that your understanding, too, from, from folks on the ground in, in Turkey and Syria? Yes and no, because I was actually going around the border region quite a lot this summer because we knew there was something happening in that Erdogan was pushing for this, and he was pushing so much that the American State Department and Pentagon were negotiating with him some sort of arrangement Mm -hmm. um, for, if not a safe zone, at first they were trying to do joint patrols and, and observation posts, to allay his fears of security. And then when he started talking about refugees and making space for them, they actually did sign an agreement, I think it was in September, to do a peace corridor, but it wasn't very clear. And officials kept telling us, you know, that they were negotiating, but it didn't seem to be advancing. So, So there was quite a lot going on, but it was never really much to write home about. So we didn't really write about it. and then, and then, of course, with Erdogan, it's quite difficult reporting from Turkey because he he makes a speech. He makes about three speeches a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he's always on, like almost campaigning all the time. He makes a a huge long speech once a week um, to his parliamentary party in in the parliament, and he, and with fantastic rhetoric, especially for the domestic audience. So there's a lot of threats, there's a lot of plans, and so you start to not listen to it all because it just goes on and on, and then sometimes the most elaborate rhetoric, you you know, doesn't get carried out. You know, we, we spent weeks, all of the, the journalists here in, in Istanbul, wondering, is he going to get the safe zone or not? Um, is, is he going to invade as he's threatened to do for about a year and a half or not? So... I would change my mind almost every day. Uh-huh. When President Trump talked to him, it was surprising, but I mean, not as surprising for me as, as you know, for, perhaps the rest of the world. Mm. You said that you had been in Syria over the summer. Is that what you said? Uh, no, just down on the border. You'd so been on the border. I, I basically, do, yeah, I do Turkey and, and Syria from the Turkish side. So. Right. In fact, what we had, we had a scare through the summer where, you know, Erdogan had done badly in the elections, lost Istanbul, he'd lost Ankara. And immediately after that, um, his own party started cracking down on the Syrians who, you know, there's many, many refugees in in Turkey. Right. There's 3.6 million. And suddenly they started uh, cracking down on them, checking that they had residency passes and moving them out of the of the cities that where they weren't registered, telling them to go back home, or at least back to their original place of registration. 
And so there was suddenly a, a big move of, of Syrians. So I was actually doing that because of the political challenges now uh, on, on Erdogan, because the economy is not doing well. There's, there's a growing resentment among the Turkish public against the Syrians. And so it was convenient for him politically to get tough on them. And then suddenly Erdogan started talking about this safe zone idea as a place for the Syrian refugees to go to. And so we did do a big story on that. And then I started looking at the, the Free Syrian Army people who who are the Turkish-backed Syrian fighters who mm-hmm. were used to be were trained by the CIA, mm-hmm. now being trained and equipped by the Turks. So I knew it was sort of cooking, you know. And and how have you covered it since Trump's announcement and the attacks by Turkey? Are there any Times reporters in Syria? No, oh, no, that was our difficulty actually. Um, I go down. I went down to the border immediately because that's mm-hmm. where Turkish troops moving in and the artillery strikes and the airstrikes. You could hear you could, and watch. You could see them. Yeah, you can in certain places. They don't let you get to the border everywhere, but you can hear the jets in some places, and you can see the artillery mm-hmm. landing in some places. Mm-hmm. So I went straight down there, and a colleague, Patrick Kingsley, came in to Istanbul to manage the sort of political story from and news from in Istanbul, and then Ben Hubbard, who is our Syria correspondent. He, he's based out of Beirut, but he's responsible for Syria, and he knows it well. He he started to head for the northeast, which is obviously where this is all unfolding, the northeast part of Syria, which is, you know, American-controlled, or at least America controls the airspace and has troops on the ground there. But it's it's a really long, complicated way to get in. So he was on his way in, waiting to get the permissions from the local Kurdish administration, who who are quite officious and difficult with get, giving permission. And of course, the day he got the permission, things really started unraveling in Syria and the regime, I don't know if you know, but the government of, of Bashar al-Assad is starting to move back into places where American forces are pulling out. Right. Suddenly, just this evening, someone sent me a video of them driving into Kobani, which is one of the towns Erdogan really wanted to take. But it, it means suddenly if you get Syrian government checkpoints on the roads, they will arrest an American journalist. So, And you don't really want to be arrested by Bashar al-Assad. Uh, you know, he's notorious for having very, very nasty prisons and so what had been what had been Hubbard do at that point? So he held back. I mean, he's still there. He's got his permission. You have to go in overland from northern Iraq, from Kurdistan in northern Iraq. So he's up there, poised to go in, but we're actually hesitating because all the journalists who were inside, whether by chance or they managed to get in quickly, they all came out. Right. Foreign journalists. Right. And and as you probably know, one a convoy of journalists did get bombed. Yeah. Uh, by the Turks. So it started to get very difficult and dangerous. And, and our, Carlotta, are you the sort of field yeah. field general on all of this coverage? I mean, are you advising all, all the different people what to do and when to do it? Or how how is it organized? Not really. I think, I think Ben is more experienced. Ben Hubbard is more experienced on Syria because he's, he's been there. And uh. he, but obviously, I'm the one who's gone down on the ground and can see things there. 
Yeah. Um, but actually, it's been it's been terrific teamwork, and we all know each other pretty well, Ben Hubbard and and myself and Patrick Kingsley. So we've all been sharing the story. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, for they mostly writing it because now we tend to do one big huge story that tells the story of the day from of Syria, but right. with all the different you know angles. Yeah. So it's easier for people who are sitting at a desk do that than someone like me who's running around in a car jumping in and out dodging right. shells and trying to interview people on the ground you know because that I, I don't always look at the news I don't actually know what's going on in the capitals of the world the Kurds are not coming they're not coming over the Turkish border right I mean they're going they're going into Syria no the, the Turkish border is actually totally sealed it's, right. a, it's a cement wall that they built right some years ago, and it's um, there's very little movement. I mean, I think there is some smuggling of people over it, but so you're talking um, primarily to soldiers. We're quite constrained. We can't reach. Well, we can't reach Turkish soldiers. We do manage to catch Syrian fighters. They're uh-huh. more like fighters because they're from all these different factions. They've right. been put into a national army, but but they're very loyal to their individual groups and commanders and what the place where they're from. And so, I mean, luckily, they're very open. You know, they're like typical mm-hmm. guerrilla fighters anywhere in the world. They're very, they're very free, and, and that's their whole essence. So, so we, you know, we ran into a group just buying snacks and ice cream uh, outside a shop, and they were on their way to go inside Syria and fight. But they took selfies with us um, oh my God. and chatted, they, and they were all from Homs. Uh huh. What is the nature of the relationship? with the Turkish regime. I mean, it seems like right now they have an interest in in getting their story out and telling their side of how they see the Kurds and why they think this is in Turkey's interest. But there's a lot of tension between them and the press. I mean, Erdogan has, has cracked down and in jail people and whatever else. So how is that playing out now in terms of them trying to sort of talk about how they see this, with, especially with foreign journalists? So they they don't tell us much. They um, they obviously have their own media who um, are, are all given a line, as far yeah. as I can understand. They're told how to, how to report, what to report. Some of them get special access. There's some who have even I think just gone in a little bit into Syria with the troops. And then there's all the rest of us. They, I think they've learnt and realised they should let us come down and run around. <clears throat> and so they've set up a press centre where you can all get a press card. Mm-hmm. But we're not allowed really to see much. So there's certain areas where we, we're, we're not allowed to go close to the border. For example, Kobane is one particular one. It's a famous Kurdish town on, on the Syrian side. So there's, there's some restrictions. Uh, there's police who stop you going close to the border in some places. But today we went to a town and there was, we hardly saw a single policeman. We wandered right up almost you could touch the border wall in some places. So it, it, it varies. And they did evacuate some towns because there was there was fighting so close to the border that oh. some shells and some bullets were coming across. And so um, they've evacuated people. And then, if, of course, being journalists, we would want to go right down as close as we could. And then we'd get caught by the police and they would sometimes they'd haul us off to the police station and uh, check our credentials and so on and lecture us that we shouldn't be there and 
and then let us go. And of course, you know, the next day we'd sort of try and trickle back in. So, you know, it's a bit of a cat and a mouse um, mm. situation in some ways. But of course, it's also, it's also, there is stuff flying around. So we did have some mortars come in um, right into the center of, of one town, um, I think on like day three incursion. And um, that was quite a shock and people were killed and a lot of the journalists had just, you know, run for cover. So there's been a bit of that as well. You said that uh, you keep saying when, when we do this or we do that. What who who is what is the size of your group when you go right onto the border like that? Yeah, I never like to be in too big a group. We're we're a team of four, with, but that's a, including a driver who always stays with a car and is a local guy. But yeah, we have a photographer, Maurizio Lima, who's um, on assignment for the New York Times, and then I have. Either uh, uh, we have two fixers who alternate one one who's Turkish and can translate the Turkish stuff, and then we have a Syrian who can do a lot of the Arabic and and has the contacts of the Syrian communities both in Turkey among the refugees, yeah. uh, but also inside. So one of the things we we're doing a lot of is meeting people who who have relatives or who know people on the in the towns that are under siege from by the Turks. So we're trying to reach them and hear what's happening and what's going on. Yeah. Um and there's quite a lot of activists here who and are in touch with people. Yeah. Um and then, you know, one day we went up the top of a hill which had a good view of Tel Abyad, which is one of the towns the Turks have taken and you know, just met this guy who just was staring into the distance. So of course, he was looking at his own village to try and see who, in whose hands it was, and what was going on on the ground, and and, and whether he can go back home soon. You know, so um, so there's some amazing encounters you have just uh, just you know driving or walking around in these towns. You know, you've reported from Chechnya, from the Balkans, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from North Africa. How are you going to tackle this, or how difficult is it going to be? I mean, the most difficult is the access. The, the story is in Syria. It's not in yeah. Turkey, really. Yeah. And that access is denied to us. Basically. And that's a basically a non-starter. That's not going to happen. Um, we're applying to go in with the Turkish troops, but in the six weeks of the Afrin uh, operation, which was a... a, a operation the Turks did last year, they never let the foreign journalists go in. I mean, I think they did one trip for, for some camera people, and then when my trip, we all got on the bus, and then we all had to get off the bus, and we never went. Uh-huh. And I think, obviously, Turkish media will go first. That's their priority. Mm-hmm. They have already taken Al Jazeera in, mm. uh, which is another priority. Turkey's very close to Qatar, and I think they want to get the word out. Um to the Arab world of what they're doing. But the chances of us going, my guess, is pretty small. We also understand it's, it's quite tough for the military to have to take in a load of journalists and worry about their security when they're still prosecuting you know, an offensive. Yeah. There's no other way in to Syria except you know, with the, the Russians or the, the regime and that's or the, the government, the Syrian government, and that's that's very difficult to get visas. And now the uh, the Northeast was uh, open for people to go in, you know, under the American control. And that looks to be now close, a gap that's fast closing yeah. um, and is going to be risky from now on. So, so that's the trouble. The war is in Syria and we can't 
really get in and report it. And so we, right. we have one reporter in Beirut who spends her whole time on social media and on the telephone mm-hmm. and, you know, messaging people um, for news and for videos and f- to understand what's going on. I mean, she's a master at it, but it's a very um, imperfect way of reporting a war. Yeah. You had a great quote in the story um, in the last week or so. You just talk, you talk a Middle East expert who, is, who described it as, he said, what's happening now is a very complicated knot being untied, which is definitely the way it looks. Um, how does Syria accept the Kurds now that they've sort of said they're teaming up with Assad? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that will work. A lot of us thought that if the, if the United States forces left, and, you know, we've all been thinking about it because President Trump did mention it earlier this year, the Kurds would go over to the to the government, mm-hmm. the Syrian government, and make a deal. And it's not really surprising because actually when you talk to people who have fought through the war, the Kurds always had relations with the Syrian government in, right. in Aleppo. They did. They they helped. You know, the government make the, the siege of Aleppo um, in Afrin. They had an agreement. The Kurds had an agreement with the government to pass through their checkpoints. So th- there have been relations on the ground. So we're not very surprised. I think what what I'm really wondering and looking is is actually what sort of control they can maintain because. The SDF were able to control things. They, they called the SDF the Syrian Democratic Forces, who, mm-hmm. were, who were backed by the Americans. They they were able to control things, and they're good fighters. We all know that they they beat ISIS, but it's a different thing to to control a po- population when you don't have the clout of of the Americans. Right. And to me, it looks like. The Syrian government doesn't have that clout. They rule by fear. Uh-huh. If you know, if communities lose their fear or have nothing to lose, you could see breaking out in more demonstrations. So, I don't know. When we call people in Syria, they say they're very scared of the regime coming back. So, mm-hmm. and what about these I- I- ISIS fighters? They'll, I mean, they'll, yeah, they'll break out at some point, presumably from their prison. I mean, the point is that. What will the regime do with them? You know, there's a lot of people who say the regime had an original aim to use those ISIS fighters against um, the people who were doing the uprising, who mm-hmm. were opposed to the Assad government. So they could be used as a tool. Some of them will just escape. Some of them will try and get to Europe, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then some of them, you know, I think a lot of the Syrians will tell you a lot of those guys who joined ISIS were not really ISIS, they were just Syrian fighters and, you know, they joined the sort of movement that was the biggest and strongest at the time. So quite a lot of them will float back and, you know, either join another group or they'll go home or they'll, you know, try and do something else. I think I think we'll see a lot trying to escape into Turkey and, and Europe because we've already seen that happening in the last year or two. Yeah, There are groups of ISIS still in the south. But if you escape from a prison in the north, I'm, I would have thought you'd, you'd find you'd find another group to join or you'd perhaps smuggle yourself into Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know? But they might well join the next thing that comes along. <laughs> and that could be worse. Um, you know, finally, the, you know, the way that this is being portrayed in the U.S. media is that 
at least um, you know at least by people on the democratic side of the aisle is that this was a this was a situation that was flawed but stable and trump sort of pulled out the rug from everybody and now there's chaos it sounds like what you're saying is that that the seeds of this were already in place but i'm wondering whether you notice any sort of different sentiment with the sentiment towards the US has shifted as a result of what Trump did have you seen have you seen that you know i've only talked to kurds this side of the really of the the border um but they they're quite united in a way you know the kurds are a minority in uh, in several countries in this region and they all feel hard done by because the states keep, you know, yeah. suppressing them or keeping them in line. And so they all want just their rights. You know, they want language rights and, yeah. and so, you know, autonomy or at least or perhaps a separate home state. But they want they just want to, be, you know, be given and given what most of us want, you know, self-determination, dignity, freedom. And um they don't really sound embittered, but they sound very disappointed that mm-hmm. America is deserting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they repeatedly say to me, you know, write something so that where is Europe, where is the, the people in the U.S., why mm-hmm. aren't they standing up, why aren't they demonstrating, why aren't they mm-hmm. standing up for us? You know, when you say, well, some people are protesting what Trump did, you know, they don't see it because they're living in Turkey and Right. see that and they feel very forgotten and, and yeah betrayed so um, so I'm sure it's much stronger in Syria because those were the guys who really did fight alongside the Americans yeah but you know coming from where I see it being in Turkey of course you get this drumbeat of you know the the white PG or the PKK a terrorist group and all that um, but you also do see the um, I, I hesitate to say stupidity, but really short-sightedness of the American, um, and I think it was more the Pentagon that did it, that, that did this alliance with this group, mm-hmm. which, okay, they were the best fighters on the ground, they, and they did the job, and they helped finish off ISIS, but or at least, you know, defeat them so they had no more territory. But very short-sighted not to look at the grander scheme of things because Turkey really has been, you know, obsessed with crushing the the Kurdish threat. And then the PKK is is not a very nice group, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they've they've caused a lot of suffering in Turkey. They're a kind of communist group. The you know journalists who work try and work with them find them very hard work you know they're they're restrictive they're not free they 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 run a very tight ship in 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 with their propaganda and keeping everyone on message they don't allow you free access you know and then they've got Ojalan's they've got a sort of cult of personality they've got Ojalan who's their leader Abdullah mm-hmm. Ojalan his poster everywhere in every office you know mm-hmm. In Syria, where, where they're in Syria, and this—he's a Turk, you know. He's a <laughs> Kurd. He's a Turkish Kurd. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of resentment against them among the Sunni Arabs, and and that I think was very short-sighted of the Americans. PKK is is not a very attractive group, yeah. but also it it was known to be unacceptable for a NATO ally, and that for Turkey, you know, 
which is the NATO ally. So I found that very short-sighted, and I think that's really complicated things now mm-hmm. because the Kurds got very bold and and they they stretched over a much bigger area than they ever would have without you know American assistance. Yeah. And so this betrayal is perhaps now going to make see them go back to the areas where you know they they are more traditionally based. They were no, the Syrian government was never very nice to the Kurds, um, but now with Russia they seem to be offering them a, a bit more, you know, language rights and autom- cultural autonomy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that'll work, because I don't feel that Bashar al-Assad is going to be able to run a stable ship yeah. going on into the future. And I, you know, I've long reported on Russia, as you know, from the early years of Chechnya, and mm-hmm. I don't have much respect for the way Russians run things. They might well have had a long traditional relationship with Syria, but the way they've retaken control of Syria has been appalling and is going to have repercussions for many years to come. It feels very like Afghanistan to me, you know, Mm -hmm. the way the Russians just, or Chechnya, the way they blasted the country into submission. And that's not really the way to, to bring stability, you know. Yeah. Well, it's an extraordinary story. Carla Gall, thank you so much. We're, we're watching in awe of what you guys are doing, and it's amazing. I, I appreciate you staying up late. My pleasure. You can read the reporting from Carlotta and the rest of her colleagues at The Times on Syria and Turkey, and check in with CJR on what's going on in, in the world of journalism at CJR.org. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.